Hello, everybody. This is Rob Fredette with the Podcast HodgePod, and welcome. We are now going to be going over the second installment of three episodes on Bob Crane, the definitive biography. On March 24th, I was interviewing Carol M. Ford and Linda Groundwater for this series. And in Memphis, we had a major, major thunderstorm. And basically, the power went out, and I let them talk, and the power came back on. So in this installment, I had asked them about... Hogan's Heroes being on in the mid-60s, just 20 years after World War II, and there was some sensitivity towards it, but I'll let them explain what they were talking about in the episode, and we'll also talk about Hogan's Heroes as well in the 60s. So I hope you enjoy this second installment, and here are Carol M. Ford, Linda Groundwater, and myself for this episode. People were mad at them for the wrong things. Even Richard Dawson said that. People were wrong, mad at us for the wrong reason. You know, we had loads of people who were Jewish on the show. We had people who, you know, this was a POW camp. And as soon as people saw it and understood that it was a parody, all those concerns and all those complaints fell aside. And the show was allowed to flourish and did have some very outrageous, black, sticky uh, comedy bits, but equally had some very, very dramatic and based on real life events, um, episodes happening. Uh, and so there was a lot of controversy in the very beginning. And again, much like this book, <laughs> they had to spend a lot of time explaining things that weren't true. You know, no, this isn't what it's about. No, this isn't what the, you know, this isn't a concentration camp. No, ignore that if you love World War, like World War II thing. That's not what it's about. They weren't trying to say that the Nazis were idiots. They were trying to say that the, you know, that's why, because that offended people, even Americans. So they're thinking that the Nazis are idiots. You know, they weren't idiots. And so it was explained, you know, Bob as well explained, it's not that they were idiots. It's saying that we're even more clever than they are. Look how well we, how, how good we are. Look how much we can outsmart them. It's not saying that we were up against a bunch of buffoons. We were up against bad guys, but we were able to get the best of them. And Bob made a point to say, too, that when the quote-unquote bad guys from Berlin came into camp, that was serious business. Like, it was, it was okay scary. for Kling for to be goofy, <laughs> Schultz to be Schultz, um, mm-hmm. and Langenschein to be Langenschein. Um, you know, but, you know, when they, when, you know, Hochstetter came in from Berlin and he had, you know, and, and even so, even though he was a little bit goofy and Burkhalter could be a little bit goofy, man, you got some, you got some Gestapo agents that came in that it was scary. There are some very serious undertones throughout the whole thing. Um, it's interesting. I wanted to just squeeze this in because I think it's really fascinating. It's not necessarily Bob Crane, but it is how John Banner perceived his own character as Schultz. You know, the whole, I know nothing, I see nothing, uh, I hear nothing. Um, You know, John Banner was a big guy. And he had said in an an interview uh, during the early days of the show, he's like, first of all, he says, Schultz is not stupid. Notice he survives. And 
the other thing is that Schultz himself is a parody, or not a parody, but it it's a representation of the country of Germany, the German people who are caught up in this whole big political thing. And they don't want to go to a concentration camp. They know their friends and family are, you know, are being taken away and they don't want to be a part of that. So what do they do? They turn away. They see nothing. They hear nothing. They, they know nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of survival during those times. And so Schultz, as that character is representative of survival, we may not like it, but we don't know how we would act in that situation were we to face it. Yeah, and I, I've watched a few episodes as well, you know, over the past couple of months getting ready for this. And even though you watch it, it's a comedy that, you know, there's still some serious overtones in it. I mean, they're still in a PO camp, POW camp. And, uh, you know, they're still, the Nazis are there guarding the camp. And then when they have the, you know, the generals coming from like Berlin and things like that, it's uh, not unnerving, but mm-hmm. you just know there's something, you know, there's something going on there. And, um, it was wonder if, if a, if a, uh, sitcom could be done today like that. It was back in the, in the mid sixties. I think that if it had been, I mean, people, a lot of the same people who were involved with Hogan's heroes were also involved with mash. Mm-hmm. And so you look at mash, how mash has evolved how it evolved over the course of its lifetime. It starts off very slapsticky, very, you know, giddy almost. And it's set in a backdrop of, to war as well, not in a POW camp, but in a MASH unit. But it's seeing a lot of the horrors of war. But the early seasons are very much lighter than about midway it turns. And it becomes more of a drama with some dry humor. Whereas Hogan's Heroes never gets to mature beyond what we actually see. I think in season six, you see more of that maturity going on with the show. Mm, some of my was, favorite episodes. Yes, exactly. And I think it's because there, and there are, I mean, there are some earlier ones, you know, mm-hmm. Mandate in Berlin. Yeah, oh um, yeah, sure. Day and Starlog 13, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but then you've got the crazy stuff. Yes. And, way. and I know. think that if it had been produced maybe in the 70s, you would have been able to see more of that um, maturing mm-hmm. along, like like you did MASH. Right. But there is all kinds of discussion today as to whether or not Hogan's Heroes would be able to be even produced today because of the nature of the setting and, you know, all of the different, all of the different politically correctness that we, that we have today. Um, I, today it would not work. In the 1970s, I think you would get that edginess that MASH was able to achieve. Um, but today there, there's, there's a lot that I think people would be, uh, turned off by. Um, but, and yet we can all sit and watch it, you know, we can all sit and watch it and enjoy it. But if it was being made now, we would go, how (laughs) terrible happened. And it's odd when you think of that, but because you can watch it now with no guilt, no problem, no issues at all. But if you have to think of it, you have to and think it's of a it product of its time, but you have and to think of it as it's now it's now a little over twenty years since nine eleven. So if somebody made a comedy about September eleventh, that's kind of I think where that would fall. Mm-hmm. You know, could you make a comedy about 
that situation. Yeah. I don't know. Mm, it's 20 yeah, years. I don't know. I think that, that, even, the Gulf that War. A, even that's a whole a different kind of, of yeah. scenario. Like that, that yeah. terrorism versus but war. It's still, but it's but that still same idea 20 years out. You're looking at that 20 yeah. year out. Yeah. Mark. Yeah. You're still looking, you know, how close is that? How, you know, what would you need to do with that? I mean, um, we feel, I mean, it feels like yesterday to us who lived through 9-11. So mm-hmm. in 1965, it feels like yesterday to those who, mm-hmm. and yet it was okay. But today, it I don't think it would be. Yep. And uh, so that is interesting. One thing I found out really fascinating when while reading the book is uh, a lot of the actors of Hogan's Heroes uh, would actually go out in costume to the public to promote the show. You don't see that anymore with any actors. They got six bodyguards around them, um, you know, driving in <laughs> in big SUVs and uh, in and out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I watched this uh, thing on uh, Instagram. It's uh, outside the ABC Good Morning America studios, and they drop off the actors, and, and they just, like, five seconds, they walk in, and people are yelling, hey, 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 hey. You know, you can't even get a <laughs> glimpse of them. But back in the 60s, I mean, in you know, they were going out in costume to promote the show. And that is, uh, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's unbelievable that they did that back then. Did they do that quite a bit? Oh yeah. Yeah, they did. And Bob, Bob more than any of them. Um, <laughs> Linda, I'll let you speak to like the guest appearances on like, you know, well, Hollywood I mean, Palace. They, they and, 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 yeah. and whenever they did, whenever they did um, guest appearances, it was in, Costume. It was in character, not even just in costume, but in character. I mean, when they even, um, you know, Christmas specials and 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 other, you know, anything they were doing, it was promoting, promoting, promoting. Remember, they were part of the Bing Crosby uh, mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a Bing Crosby production, and Bing was in control of an awful lot of stuff. So when they appeared as a guest of Bing Crosby, he wanted to promote his shows. And let's face it, although there was some knowledge of who some of these people were, Larry Hovis had been on the opening, for instance, of Lapin, um, you know, and, and Robert Clary had done a couple things here and there. And, and certainly uh, uh, Richard Dawson had and people kind of knew Bob, but these were not huge stars on television by the time Hogan's Heroes came about. So if you wanted these people to be known, it was going to be these are these characters. This is the show everyone's talking about. Look at them right now, dressed wow. as these characters right now, as these characters right now. Uh, and that was just continued and continued and continued. Um, even before the show began, they were out doing little skits of, of Hogan's Heroes uh, on a little promotional tour type thing. Um, Cynthia Lynn told us about that as they were all in there you know, all, all in character. And we found these little, didn't we find these little, not props, but little keychains or something or other. About, oh yeah. The keychains. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that were showing, you know, everything was about show promotion. It's very different now. Uh, it's very, very different now, but back then you would take the whole cast and you go, here's the cast, here's the show. <laughs> and you just took that show out of it. You know, they took them out of World War II and plunked them into the middle of, of you know, whatever situation they happened to be in. And uh, it was just always character, character, which contributes to the issues Bob had later on of being typecast. And Bob was very much 
front and center with mm. all of that. I mean, all of the photo shoots he's always in. I mean, there there are so many. He, you know, with the American Lawn Association, he goes in as Colonel Hogan. Uh, he's, you know, doing something with the the bus, uh, the public bus route in Los Angeles, and there he is as Colonel Hogan. And, and oh, he told the a story. He told the story. He was Colonel Hogan, you know. He told the story where they, um, he was, I I guess he was um, at at one of the train stations or bus stations or whatever, and he was in full Hogan guard, but it was before the series had actually started. And some some Air Force personnel walked by him. And of course, what the Air Force uniform was in 1945 was much different than what the Air Force uniform was in 1965. It was not brown and khaki. It was blue. And so they walked by him and they were like, they couldn't, he, he told the story where they, they were like, they could not understand why he was wearing the older uniforms because he was a young guy. It's not like, you know, it was you know, the, the general from White Christmas who gets all dressed up in his general's outfit for the for the end of the sh- the, the movie. He was yeah, here he is sitting there waiting for his, <laughs> his um photo shoot and he's in his and he's in the, the, the World War Two fatigue uh uniform and they're walking by in their dress blues and they're like Wow, somebody better get him up with the times because there's something wrong there because nobody knew yet. Nobody knew yet. And so yeah, it did add to uh his typecasting later on because in the beginning, he was very much excited to promote the show, and he was all in, 100%. Bob was driven. Driven was a word to describe how he was in his career and in his life, and he went all in. And so he was going to do everything in his power to make this show a success. You fast forward six years, and everybody knows him now as Colonel Hogan, and they're yelling at him, hey, Hogan, Colonel Hogan, Colonel Hogan, to the point where he, I mean, he always loved his fans. He never was mean to his fans. He adored his fans. Mm-hmm. He answered all Very of his amazing. all of his own email or all of his own email, all of his own fan mail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, this shows you how we just say that now without even thinking. But he answered all of his own fan mail. Um, and but yet his name was Bob Crane. And this, there was this one time that got picked up uh, somewhere in the press where he was standing um, on on the deck of a boat looking down. And I want to think it was a boat kind of like the Queen Mary or something like mm. that, but he's looking down and and the fans are going, Colonel Hogan, Colonel Hogan, oh, look, you know, they're waving. And he says under his breath, my name's Bob Crane, damn it. Because <laughs> it gets old, you know, it's not, Colonel Hogan didn't die, Bob Crane died. Colonel Hogan didn't have a birthday, Bob Crane had a birthday. And so... What happens is, is after Hogan's Heroes ends, he now is in a predicament where people, casting, producers, they only see him as Hogan, not just the audiences, but also the people who are in charge of getting him jobs, who who want to hire him. Mm. And one of the, the directors that we spoke with, um, it was the director, I think, for Ellery Queen said it was like directing Colonel Hogan. You know, I could not not see Hogan while I was directing him. He did fine, but it was like Colonel Hogan was playing the part of whomever it was in the episode, uh, not Bob Crane. And so that that haunted him, and that followed him pretty much throughout the 70s, uh, sadly, uh, until he starts to turn a corner. And that happened so shortly before his murder that... um, that we really start to 
see him breaking into some more dramatic roles and really digging in to that acting piece where he's breaking free a little bit of Hogan. He's now reinventing himself. Uh, and he does that with the love boat, doesn't he, Linda? Yep, he sure does. Look, and it's important to say, too, that, um, and and I was saying to Carol the other day, I happened to find this in the book. <laughs> you know, there's so much book that you forget what you've actually put in there sometimes. There's a lot of book there. Uh, there's a lot of <laughs> yeah, book there. Lot. So if you get on to about, about page 180-ish, um, Bob told a friend, uh, Leo McElroy, with whom he worked at W, uh, sorry, at uh, KNX, he said, I, you know, he found a play that he wanted to do and Bob, he thought Bob would like to do it. And he said, look, I, I want to be a star. Stars play themselves. He said, but what, what he was excited by, what Bob was excited by, for instance, was when he got to Donna Reed, he said, you're not going to believe this. I'm doing a running part of the Donna Reed show and I get to play me. And me was, the wise guy, the the um, you know the the neighbor who was just offbeat and wild. But what's really important to know is that this is a role that Bob constructed. Um, I'm going to back that up a little because it's important to to understand this because it, it I, I've got to admit it really kind of blew me away when I rediscovered this. I'm sure I knew this at one point because we wrote it. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> but uh, Bob had a personality that he showed his family and his friends and people when he was in private. But as an actor, as a radio personality, he had a different cloak that he put on that was presented to the public. And that became a second skin for him. And that became what Bob was known as, mm -hmm. even though it wasn't necessarily who he was deep down inside. Of course, there are elements there. Bob was a crazy guy. He was a lot of fun. He was very personable. Hogan was all of those things. But people say that, you know, he was playing himself when he played Hogan, which really annoyed him by the way. He, they said, oh, he's not acting. It's one of the reasons we believe he didn't actually get an Emmy because they kept saying, well, he's not acting. He's playing himself. Well, no, he's not. What he was doing was playing the Bob Crane that Bob Crane built for the public to see. Now, that doesn't mean he was hiding anything. It meant that that was the Bob Crane that was the actor. That was the persona that was the personality i mean rock hudson was nothing like he was in private in public jimmy stewart was probably quite different in private than in public cary grant was different in private in public mm -hmm. marilyn monroe all of these people had a personality that was their public personality and that public personality that bob had was getting parts that were very much like his public personality so when people said he's not acting, he was thinking, of course I'm acting. I'm acting all the time. When he goes home, he's not Bob. He, he's not the Bob Crane of KNX or of Hogan's Heroes. He's the Bob Crane that his family and friends know. Mm -hmm. It's a very different character. Bob was always that character. And the reasons for it would, you know, be a psychologist's dream, I suppose. But also it's not uncommon for actors and public figures to do that. 
they keep the closest part of themselves for their family and their close friends. What you get as the public is something different, is something that you want, something, you know, that people want to see. And Bob got parts based on those. So when he needed to reinvent, it was to come back more to who he was and a little bit less to the look at this wild guy who's a disc jockey, who's a, who's a you know, off the wall, whatever. It was more of the Bob that Bob was. And he just never had a chance to let all of that out. You know, uh, with that. Uh, I probably said that very poorly, but I no, think it you, makes sense. No, you, well, you, no, and, and, you made a lot of sense. And, and you know what? To, to, to follow that up with and to bring that back around, that makes perfect sense. Because in order for him to act um, in the dramatic roles that he was digging into, mm-hmm. and I bring up the love boat because he mm-hmm. has to cry in the love boat. He has to really bring those emotions. It's a dramatic part. It's a very dramatic part. And what he's doing is, is he's thinking about uh, what his daughter Karen told us was he was thinking about the separation between himself and his second wife, Patty. Um, mm-hmm. And it was upsetting to him. And so in order for him to bring those emotions to that character, that is more closer to Bob Crane than the crazy radio personality from KNX. Mm-hmm or the John Wayne personality of Hogan, Colonel Hogan, um, it's more of Bob Crane bringing out his own talent as an actor and digging in very, very deep, which, you know, Linda's an actress, I am not, but it is very difficult to do. And that is where, because that, that was aired so soon before his murder, just a few months before his murder, uh, in 1978, people see that as, oh my gosh, he can't even act. Look, he's crying, and, and it's like, no, 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 no. This is actually one of the best things he has done it's in acting. his acting career. He's acting. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I don't I- understand why people think acting when they when they see good acting, it's not the character. You know, it's not the personality that they expect to see. Then all of a sudden, that person's not acting. It just means they're acting really well. It was Arlene Martell who actually said to us, you know, they said, you, did, you didn't ever see him, you know, making an effort. It didn't seem to be an effort. And she said, well, they wouldn't be a very good actor if it looked like they were, you know, grunting and groaning yeah. and struggling, to, you know, <laughs> an actor is supposed to make it look effortless. I play drunks and prostitutes on stage occasionally, and I get these roles a lot because I do them really well. But you know what? I don't sell myself. The hidden pride of Linda Graham Apparently there's a a drunken prostitute somewhere inside my body. Um, And, you know, I I don't, you know, if it looks like an effort, then it's really bad acting. So when Bob was acting, he was acting really well. He was a good actor. And a couple of people said the same to us later on, even when he was, I can't remember who specifically, I can see it all in my notes, you know, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was a very good actor. He was acting and actors are supposed to make it look effortless. And so Hogan looked effortless, but it was a lot of work. But that meant that later on people went, oh, well, you know, it's Colonel Hogan. It's like, no. Well, you yeah. Know, well, it's you know, Bob. It's, it's acting. I mean, I mean, he got a he got a raw deal if you if I'm um, I'm just you got you're just talking about Linda. I mean it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's Terminator and Predator. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he does kindergarten cop, jingle all the way, and twins, and 
He, you know, he wasn't typecast as Terminator or Joe Pesci, you know, in Goodfellas. Mm -hmm. And then he does uh, My Cousin Vinny, which I say is between a a uh, between half of Home Alone and half of Goodfellas. I mean, Mm -hmm. acting is acting, and I mean, I think that is overlooked for actors, and I wish people would stop doing that and put them in roles that are opposite what they do. I think they would, I think that would be refreshing in Hollywood. I think too, Rob is because Bob came from radio. um, He was not taken seriously as an actor in, in with the seasoned actors and um, the entertainment. Jack Nicholson was very cruel. Um, Jack Nicholson had um, Jim Senich told us that, that Jack was not very nice. He was making, he was yes. funny. Yes. But, it, but uh, Gene Reynolds, same thing. Was it Gene Reynolds? Gene Reynolds, same thing. Gene? I don't remember, but it, I, there was also oh. Norman S. Powell who said that. Um, yeah, Norman Powell. Uh, uh, but it, he he wasn't the one that was doing it. It was uh, Jack. Uh, I keep thinking Skippy. Um, but in any mm. case, um you know, from the Bob Crane show from NBC, mm-hmm. um, they said, you know, something about, you know, they were comparing him to Alan Alda, that maybe we should have Alan Alda. And, and you know, there were, there was, there were a lot of people who, yes, they saw what Bob was doing. They, they liked him on Hogan's Heroes. They were happy for him that that show was a success, but there was also the undercurrent of, well, you were just a radio guy. And you're not really a serious actor and you got lucky. And he was trying, he was fighting that as well throughout his, his career. And by the time he gets over that, that hump as well as the typecasting and we're getting into those dramatic roles like the love boat, he doesn't have much time left. I mean, we know that he didn't, but it's sad that he didn't get to go beyond uh, what he did. I do need to to um, clear Gene Reynolds' name. <laughs> uh, it was Jackie Cooper. Jackie, Jackie Cooper. Yes, and I was thinking Skippy Jackie Cooper. Was like, yes, 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 Jackie yes, Cooper yes, was yes, saying, "You're exactly like, right." Oh, Bob, the yes. greatest single episodic comedian in our business yes. is Alan Alda. Yes, you know, and he would rave about Alan Alda constantly. And yep. And, and in the end, look that that cost uh, that that cost Jackie Cooper his his um, director directorial role in the Bob Crane Show because you don't keep doing that to the star of your show. You don't do that to any of your actors. So that was just cold. So that was just cold. What was uh, um, you know? If you want to make someone feel inadequate, keep doing stuff like that. Well, you know, people... and Bob was very sensitive to that. It's just, it's amazing. I mean, uh, I don't care. You're on a, you're on a sitcom that you're, you're, you're an actor and you should be able to reap the benefits of it. Um, you know, this has been unbelievable to learn like how he was treated, even with all that success. It's, uh, it's mind boggling. So on the set of Hogan's heroes, how was, um, how was his interaction with the cast? Uh, I seem to think that people really liked him on the cast. Was there anybody on the cast uh, that may have not liked him, but uh, it seemed pretty much, uh, it was majority of favorable towards him on the cast. They, everybody seemed to like him. It was a big family. Yeah. And, and like all families, there will be some tensions. Um, there was a little bit of professional tension because let's get it out of the way. People always talk about it um, between Bob and Richard Dawson. 
um, but there was enough respect between them that it didn't affect their work. Um, and Bob would say to family, if you need anything while I'm away, contact Richard Dawson. When Bob was offered, by the way, Family Feud and turned it down, he said, you need to go talk to Richard Dawson. He would be great at this. So there was a little bit of tension between them in terms of, of their work. But even Richard Dawson in the end came and said, there is no one else who could have pulled this off. Dawson did want to audition for Hogan, but they didn't want an Englishman. They wanted an American. And he said his own accent was awful and he couldn't have done the show the way Bob did. And he settled into being, you know, Peter Newkirk and they had a great six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, but overall it I mean, they were practical jokes on the set. It was, <laughs> it was very, it was uh, what they used to do to guest stars who had to sit in that, um, in the tunnel, in the tunnel or in the, in the tree stump. Oh my goodness. Um, spiders and mice in the tree stump where poor little actors were holding. <laughs> um, it was a, it was, they were, I think it was Arlene Martell, but others also who said to us that when they got told that they were going to do Hogan's Heroes that week, it was a joy. It they was celebrated. It was to celebrate. They loved mm-hmm. being on that set. Um, and everyone got on, on that set. Um, all you have to do, we, you know, we were very fortunate to have access to Bob's belongings mm-hmm. that his son Scott has has kept all this time in their storage unit. And I mean, for instance, just to I mean the, the mountains and mountains of, of his belongings from everything from scripts to scrapbooks to, to you name it, um, his wallet is still intact from the wow. night that he was murdered. So every Every dollar that's in there, every picture that it's, it's like if you were to hold that wallet, it it's exactly the same as June 28th, 1978. Um, I say June 28th because that's the last day that Bob was alive that he mm-hmm. would have had the wallet on him, um, not just sitting on the, the dresser. Um, but part of all of that were all of the letters that he wrote to the cast and some of the crew of Hogan's Heroes uh, at the end, when he got word that uh, in March 1971 that it was not going to be renewed for the seventh and final season, Hogan's Heroes was first contracted for five seasons, and then it was contracted after the fifth year ran out, the fifth uh, contract, the end of the fifth contract ran out, the fifth year ran out, uh, another two seasons. So it was going to go for seven, uh, mm-hmm. but at the end of season six, there was what has now become known as the Rural Perch, which was when CBS went through and took shows like Hogan's Heroes and uh, the Beverly Hillbillies and Lassie and just took them off and just canceled them outright and made room for shows like All in the Family that would deal with the issues of the day rather than what they were looking at as more as, you know, the bubblegum, you know, wow. McHale's Navy, I Dream of Jeannie and those sorts of things uh, from the 60s. And um, so Bob had gotten word that they were not going to be renewed for season seven. And he wrote these beautiful letters to Larry Hovis and Ivan Dixon, who had left at the end of season five, uh, to Kenneth Washington, who played Baker, who was only there for one year, uh, to Richard Dawson, to Robert Clary, to Werner Klemperer, to John Banner, to some of the crew members, and just expressed how 
grateful he was to each of them for making the show the tremendous success that it was. And then also if they needed anything to call on him that, you know, he was always there for the, for them. Um, they were going to, they, uh, meaning Bob and Werner Klemperer and Robert Clary were going to do a variety show based on Hogan's Heroes. It was going to be the end. You know, everybody says, oh, there was never an ending to Hogan's Heroes. And, and yet Bob had written an ending that was going to be produced in Vegas as a, uh, as a variety show. And, uh, Bob was going to play Hogan and Robert Clary was going to be LeBeau and Werner Klemperer was going to be Clink. Clink was going to be Hogan's uh, business manager and um, Johnny Thompson, who uh, has since passed, but he was a good dear friend of Bob's. He was a magician, uh, the consultant to Penn and Teller and Chris Angel. Uh, he was going to be a part of this as well and do magic tricks. Uh, and this was all going to be done as like this grand finale as a Vegas show. And then it fell through um, for reasons that, um, you know, Bob felt that the, the venue in Vegas, uh, the um um their their the person that had lined the show up uh, was not forthcoming and um, he felt that it was not it was a shady deal so he he unfortunately felt he needed to end it um, but he mentions that in these letters to Werner Klemperer and so forth and says sorry that you know it's too bad that the Vegas show is on hold right now but maybe later you know so these these letters are just a real indication of the camaraderie that did exist and how Bob was both, um, you know, with them and they with him. You know what I find fascinating? And you not know- just the stars, not sorry, not just the stars, because the, the, what I do love is there's a photo in Bob's scrapbook of all the regular extras. And you'll see people like Roy Goldman, who shows up on, on MASH, uh, you know, there's that one extra that you see everywhere all the time. <laughs> he had a kind of professional career of being an extra. He was lovely, though. You know, occasionally these extras got lines, but there were like five or six regular extras on Hogan's Heroes. And in Bob's scrapbook is a picture of these men. And the only reason we know who most of them are is that Bob wrote their names down on this photograph. But underneath their names, he wrote the real heroes. That's awesome. So to Bob, there was no, you're the star and you're just an extra. Mm-hmm. There was, everybody was working together. And one of the people, was it Jerry London? I'm terrible at knowing which. We spoke with so many people involved with Hogan's Heroes. It was just such a blessing and a joy um, that one of them said, you know, it was a very family atmosphere. And let's face it, the star of the show is in large part responsible for how the atmosphere is on a set. And Bob was very welcoming to everyone. He never acted like he was better than everyone else. He never came in unprepared. Um, Everyone we spoke to, female as well as male, um, well, all the females we spoke to said there was no funny business. They, they were warned about funny business, but they never saw any funny business. The only funny business they saw was from John Banner. And when they um, were warned about John Banner and, and not about Bob. Yeah, they yeah. were warned about it, you know. Um, but Bob made people feel like your role as a guest was just as important as his. And he seemed to understand as an actor that your scene is only going to go as well as it's least skilled and least 
talented actor. So Bob gave people something to play against, and he allowed each actor in a scene to shine. He did not try to upstage unlike certain actors. Well, you know, uh, you mentioned the Richard Dawson uh, tension with Bob Crane. You know, after all the tension they have, and then when they asked him to do Family Feud, he he mentioned Richard Dawson to do it. I mean, he didn't didn't seem like right. he holding any grudge or anything like that. And I'm sure maybe Richard Dawson was appreciative. You know, long after Bob Crane's death, Bob Bob, Bob didn't have. Um, I mean, I think we all have have a temper. We all are human. We all have oh, yeah. the range of emotions. But I think at his at his core, I think Bob was a very kind person, and I think he wanted to give everybody uh, the benefit of the doubt. If Bob is at fault for anything, it's probably that he did not uh, have a very good judge of people in that he thought everybody should be his friend and everybody was good, when in fact he was um, kind of becoming close with people who were not very good, uh, which could possibly have ended up leading to to mm-hmm. his murder we don't know for sure because his murder is still unsolved but uh bob was hanging around with as reverend beck said and other people had said you know some very shady characters and yet he treated them as though they were just as you know as you know as hollywood royalty i mean they he did not seem to have uh a he, didn't have a or, he didn't have a, he didn't have a bob was a um bob's son scott um, told it to his best, and he just said he's, he was a terrible judge of character. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the number of people that he interviewed and the number of people that he um, interacted with on a regular basis, you would think there would be more of a of an idea of what you know what it, what is this person like. Bob did not have that filter. He didn't have that understanding. Um, he, it was just something he lacked. He Scott tells us a story of, I'm going to, I'm going to be very vague here because it's broad, but um, they were invited to stay at this beautiful place for the weekend. And he said, we need to go. And we've been invited to stay at this beautiful place for the weekend. And his wife said, are you crazy? And he said, I don't understand. She said, they're mob, Bob. He said, well, they're not mob with me. And he's like, they're mob, Bob. You know, <laughs> he had no idea. Yeah, he was almost very childlike in his perception of of people. He wanted everybody to be his friend. He wanted everybody to like him. Uh, and it, yeah, everybody, you know, everybody's going to be my friend. Everybody's going to be, you know, everybody's going to be nice to me. And because they're nice to me, that just means they're nice. Hey, guess what? That's not true. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not true. And Bob, had, Bob had no, no clue no clue when it came to to who was good for him and who was not and it took a real shake up for him to understand when somebody was bad for him and that came right before he passed away um but uh it you know other people had to point it out he just did not understand how those things worked well you know uh linda you know we did a couple of episodes on the monkeys i while doing research the uh, hogan's heroes lost the emmys to the monkeys in 66 67 did you know that yeah okay i thought you did yeah you you did but uh i i, I knew i was like i was like I we did this episodes and i'm like oh my god the monkeys <laughs> true 
true. And, you know, again, that idea of, of not understanding what that show was about, as in Hogan's Heroes, and then once they did get what it was about, didn't understand that Bob was acting. You know, Verna Klemperer, they could tell, was acting. For some reason, they couldn't tell Bob was acting, and, and he just could not get past it. And whether he was very upset by not getting it, you know, we don't. We haven't been told any of that one. Where there's no hint about it, one way or the other. One would presume he was disappointed. Um, and and uh, but you know, if you don't think someone's acting, you're not going to give them a, an Emmy for Best Actor. And if you don't understand what the show is about, you're not going to give them a break for the idea of you know Best Comedy Series because why would you? We don't think that's funny. It's not funny to talk about a concentration camp. Well, hey, guess what? That's not what it is. Yeah, it's... Uh, so they did struggle. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening to this second installment of episodes for Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography. Next week, we are going to have the last in the series of episodes with Carol M. Ford and Linda Groundwater on Bob Crane, the definitive biography. So we'll see you next week. Mm